You're listening to a Garden City Chapel podcast by Dr. Robert Shaw. For a complete archive of podcasts, visit our website at www.gardencitychapel.com. Thank you, Carl and Heather. Carl, did you write that song? I've never heard that song before. Awesome. Uh, if you're interested, do y'all have any CDs if somebody wanted to take some music home with them so y'all can see them after the service? I have a guitar pick that he broke earlier. Uh, this will be on eBay this afternoon. <laughs> What's the going rate on a guitar pick now? <laughs> All right. I invite you to open your Bibles to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter... Three. I've been preaching through First and Second Peter this summer. If you're interested in getting any of the other messages to kind of catch up with where we are today, uh, they are available. You can see you can either email us or Gary. Uh, they're free uh, and they're on just CDs. If you'd like to catch up with with uh, First Peter or the other part of Second Peter, let me read this passage to you. This is Peter, and just to just to recap, he's writing to a group of believers who are suffering persecution scattered over the known world of that time. They're being harassed by false teachers. They're being persecuted by people who hate Jesus and hate the fact that they are claiming the name of Jesus. Peter is likely writing this letter from a prison cell, and not long after he writes the letter, he will be put to death himself, all for the cause of Christ. And one thing that Peter is looking forward to is the return of Jesus. And so last week we looked at kind of the beginning of chapter 3, and then in verse 10 he says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in Him in peace, spotless, and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also your beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of scriptures, to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. I don't know if you've ever been sitting at your home and the doorbell rang or someone knocked on the door or maybe if your house is like ours, the dog started barking for no apparent reason. And somebody's at your house. If your house is like ours, we have four children and a dog. And sometimes we go into panic mode when somebody knocks on the door. Why? Because the house isn't ready for company. Well, Peter is writing about that very same thing. He's writing about the fact that there are some people that aren't ready for company. They're not ready for the return of Christ. 
George Barna has done a, a study of American citizens, and in America, his survey has revealed that 62% of Americans believe that Jesus Christ is returning. They just they don't know when. It's just at some point in time, Jesus will return. I would dare say that 100 years ago, that was probably a larger percentage. I would dare say that in the first century, 100% of the Christians you surveyed would have said, we believe Jesus Christ is coming back. Why? Because he said he was. We saw him ourselves, and we know from the testimony that he has ascended into heaven, and the angels told the men there with him that he's coming back in much the same way. So right now, only 62% of Americans believe it. But I tell you this, when he comes back, 100% are going to believe it. <laughs> but a lot of them are going to be caught, caught off guard. Even some of the 62 that believe it, even some of those percentage that say, yeah, we believe Jesus Christ is coming back, they're not ready for him to return. So let's look first of all at this passage and simply the details of his return. Peter says, the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. The word or the phrase day of the Lord appears many times in Scripture, over 20 times, about 19 times in the Old Testament, and then several times in the New Testament, the term day of the Lord. It always refers to judgment. It always refers to God fulfilling a promise of judgment. And Peter describes it as being, it will be like a thief. In fact, that, that term appears other places in scriptures. In fact, Jesus himself said it's going to occur like a thief in the night. So he's coming like a thief. What does that mean? Is he coming to steal something? No, that's not what he's talking about. It means this. It means he's coming at a time when the homeowners are not going to be expecting it. It's probably going to come at a time at night when you're already asleep. Maybe you lock the door, but if you knew the thief was coming, you'd take more action than that, wouldn't you? You'd probably call the police and alert them. I need you over at my house about midnight. You may be standing there with your loaded shotgun or your guard dog or an extra security. You may have started stacking furniture up in front of the door. And so when Peter says he's going to come like a thief, he's trying to give the people that he writes to the impression that he's coming without warning, without notice, and yet other places in Scripture, it says that it shouldn't overtake us like a thief in the night. Why? Because we as believers ought to be ready. It's not going to be a big oops moment for us. <laughs> Just like when the people knock on your door and you don't expect it and it puts the family into panic mode to start hiding stuff. You know, take the dirty dishes in there and throw this under the couch and take that outside. By all means, grab the dog. It's not going to catch us that way. Now, we don't know the exact moment that Christ is coming. He's given us some indications of signs to look for, but we're not going to know the exact moment. But when it comes, we can, it can come with us with a smile on our face. Why? Because we're ready. So he says it's going to come like a thief in the night. And then look at some of the, look at some of the imagery he gives us. While the world is feeling secure, it says the heavens will pass away with a roar. The word for roar here is one of those words that I tried to pronounce earlier in the summer. It's an onomatopoeia, which it, the word itself sounds like the whizzing sound of what Peter was trying to describe here. There's going to be this roar. There's going to be this rushing current of air almost, and the heavens will pass away. The elements will be destroyed. The word for elements means something in orderly arrangement. It would be used of like the alphabet or a string of numbers. But it simply means this. This orderly arrangement that God has created is one day going to come to an end. It's going to be cataclysmic. 
He describes it as having intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. The word that he uses there is not the normal word for earth, which would mean globe. This means earth, simply the dirt, and the stuff that's been built on it is going to burn up. Why is it that we and certainly non-believers think that the world is way more enduring than people are? Why is it that we place so much stock in things see there's going to be a day where we're going to face God face to face and some people all they're going to have is their stuff they may be able to point to a building they built or to a hospital wing or to some possession but when they face God ultimately where's all that stuff going to be it's going to be gone if you're counting on that as kind of your legacy that you're leaving the world and your legacy that your life mattered. Let me tell you something. That's very empty and shallow. If you face God having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it's really not going to matter about all that stuff because you exist. You will last forever, but your stuff won't. So Peter describes this cataclysmic events where stuff's going to melt, stuff's going to dissolve, literally. It's going to be burned up. And so then he asked this, I think, very important question. If the world is going to be destroyed in that way, what kind of people ought we to be? So next let's look at how we should live. Since all these things are going to be destroyed that way, since Jesus Christ is coming back, how should we live? It amazes me that over the course of time, a lot of people have predicted the coming of Christ. I was a youth pastor in 1988 when the book came out, 88 Reasons for 88. Well, Jesus didn't come back in 88. In fact, I remember standing at a phone booth in Atlanta, Georgia, where these two uh, conversion-type vans came in, and they had those kind of numbers or letters you'd put on the side of your mailbox. They had those on the side of their van. Jesus is coming back, and they had a date on there. They were in a hurry. Well, Jesus didn't come back then. And, and why is it that a lot of people, when they, when they believe Jesus is coming back on October the 12th or whenever it's going to be, they sell everything they've got and go live on a mountaintop. Are they just trying to make it easier for God to find them? Or, you know, if they're going to be caught up together in the air, they're going to get a head start on the lowlanders? What is that all about? You know, we joke sometimes, you know, if we knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, we'd go take out a big loan and buy a Ferrari or something, you know. Yeah, I'll pay for it over six years. Jesus is coming back tomorrow, you're going to have a hard time collecting. And yet it's sad that some people have been led astray that because all this stuff's going to be destroyed that way, they're not living their lives the way Jesus would have them live their life. I read a story this week about Colonel Davenport. He was a speaker of the Connecticut House of Representatives. On May 19, 1780, the sky of Hartford darkened ominously, and some of the representatives, glancing out the windows, feared the end was at hand. I love what he said. It says, quelling a clamor for immediate adjournment, Davenport rose and said, the day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there's no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Therefore, I wish that candles be brought. Rather than fearing what is to come, we're to be faithful till Christ returns. Instead of fearing the dark, we're to be lights as we watch and wait. So it's a good question then. How should we be living our life if... All this stuff, well, one thing I want to say is, if all this stuff's going to melt, then quit putting so much of your effort and energy into the stuff. 
Yeah, it's a good idea to have enough of it to live on. But if your life is absorbed by the accumulation of things, folks, you've gotten to the point where you don't own them anymore. They own you. So how ought we to live? Looking for and hastening the day. Looking for, literally to anticipate and wait expectantly. expectantly. Yeah, there ought to be times of our lives that we just are reminded, God, you're coming back. And I look forward to that day. As John said in Revelation, Maranatha, Lord, may you come quickly. But folks, don't allow it to absorb your mind to the point that it's all you ever think about. And some people say you're so heavenly minded you're of no earthly good. Be careful that it's not the only thing you think about. Yes, it's reality, and yes, it's going to happen. And yeah, there ought to be times that it crosses our mind and we do a checkup. Lord, am I ready? Am I helping other people get ready? But don't put stock in the things that are going to be destroyed. Where do we put stock? We put stock in the things that are going to last forever. What's going to last forever? People are. Put your effort and energy, first of all, make sure that you're right with God. And then secondly, be doing what God commanded us. In fact, he uses the word, and hastening the day. One of the great debate among scholars then is, what does it mean, hastening the day? Does it mean I have something to do with the return of Christ? And I, as I read this week, I found scholars that kind of are divided on the issue. On the one extreme, you've almost got folks that say, and I believe in the sovereignty of God, folks, but listen, some would say they're so dedicated to the sovereignty of God that nothing we do matters. The flip side of the coin is they think everything depends on us. It's almost like God is waiting on us to do something. Listen, God's already determined when He's coming back. But Jesus put it this way over in Matthew chapter 24. He said, this gospel shall be preached to the nations, and then the end will come. So one thing I know for sure is God's made a promise. The message of Jesus Christ and his salvation is going to go to the people. And if you want to know how are we doing on the nations, there's still people groups that haven't had the gospel translated into their language. We're making great progress. When the computer came along and some of those kind of things and and languages can be broken down and places like Wycliffe Bible Translators and those kind of, kind of ministries are in existence. The Word's getting there. But we ought to look expectantly and we ought to do anything we can to hasten that day. No, it's not dependent on us. It is dependent on a sovereign God. But He's given us a job to do in the meantime. And then he says, we're hastening the coming day of God. How's that different from the day of the Lord? He's used the term day of the Lord. Now he uses the day of God. The day of the Lord is judgment. The day of God is an eternal state where God reigns. His enemies have been defeated. God reigns. Folks, that's what we're looking forward to. The day of judgment, the day of the Lord is going to be horrible for people that aren't ready. But for you who've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can look forward to the day of God. Because that's the day that He welcomes you and says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's the day that He says, Come into your eternal rest. And folks, whether that happens someday at the return of Christ, or whether it happens tomorrow for you because your life ends, we on this side of eternity almost look at that as a horrible day, and yet it's not. When it's God's time for you to meet Him face to face, folks, if you're a child of God, you can do it with a smile on your face. The promises of God are priceless. In fact, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. I love that. 
this earth and this heaven that God created for a purpose, it's not going to be around anymore. It's going to melt with intense heat. It's going to be destroyed. And yet God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Literally means to be housed permanently. It means to be right with God on a permanent basis. That's who's going to experience heaven for eternity. So then we ought to be diligent. We ought to put effort to use speed, be prompt. We ought to be diligent then to be found in Him three ways that Peter describes. First of all, in peace. And peace means to be set at one again. It means to have peace of mind that you are right with God. So when Jesus comes back, we ought to be found by Him in peace. You have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. This isn't going to apply to every church member. It's not going to apply to every single person that's ever read the Bible. There's certain things you can do that are religious, but they don't give you peace with God because you've never given your life to Christ. You've never trusted Him as your Lord and Savior. So be diligent to be found in Him, first of all, in peace, right with God. Secondly, to be found in Him spotless. What does that mean? It means unblemished. This is a word really that applies more to Christian character, of what it's like on the inside. Spotless. And secondly, blameless. Best definition I can give you for blameless means it's you're unblameable. That's not real helpful, is it? <laughs> Let me do better than that. To be blameless is not so much what's on the inside. It's more of what's on the outside. It's more about Christian character. So Peter says, be found in him in peace, be found spotless. What does that mean? Make sure you're right with God, that there's not some sin in your life that you're harboring. But also that you're blameless. There's only one way that you can be blameless. And that is you must be forgiven. Now yes, it's about your Christian character. But folks, whether people have anything to say about you or not, it's real important that God doesn't have anything against you. And apart from Christ, I'm a sinner. And God hates sin. What does the Bible say? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Is there anybody in this room that doesn't apply to? Don't raise your hand because the answer is no. Every one of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark. Then it goes on in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, and says, but, It says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the way that I stand blameless before God is not something I did. It's everything about what He did. And He has applied that sacrifice to my life because I've trusted Christ. I've confessed that I'm a sinner. And I've asked Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sin and be my Lord and Savior. So that's how I'll be found in Him, spotless and blameless. And then He says this, Regard the patience of God, not as the unbelievers do because earlier in this passage he's already said back in the first few verses of chapter 3 he said you know what the rest of the world is going to be looking and saying he ain't coming if he was going to come he'd have come by now how long has it been since he made the promise well the last time that he made the promise when the angels told the men he's coming again that's almost been 2,000 years ago not quite but almost 2,000 years ago and so the world looks at that and says if he was going to come he'd have come by now and what, what does Peter say? Peter says, hey, don't regard it as slowness. He's not tardy. He's not inept or unable. He's patient. You see, with the Lord, a thousand years is like one day. And one day is like a thousand years. So in God's economy, it's only been a couple of days since He's been gone. 
And he's coming again just as surely as he was here the first time. And so we regard it not as slowness, but we regard it as patience. Why? Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to faith in him and to eternal life. It's a good thing that God waited. There's some of you in this place that if he had come a year ago, you didn't know him. You'd have been lost. You'd have spent eternity separated from him. And yet because he's patient. Why? Because he loves you that much. And in the midst of his patience, folks, we his people need to be telling other people about Jesus. Regard his patience as salvation. And then I love what Peter says. He talks about Paul's writings. He says, you know what, what I'm saying agrees with what Paul says. If you've read his letters, and obviously Peter had read some of them because they went to the same churches that Paul's, Peter's writing these letters to. He said, listen, you know what, some of his letters are hard to understand. Does that make you feel better that even Peter would say, you know, some of what Paul writes is kind of hard to understand. But the response to things that are hard to understand is to accept them as a mystery and not just say, well, that's dumb. Or do as the non-believers say, and they distort them. Literally, they persecute the truth of God's Word. They wrench or twist. It's like they put it on the rack and stretch it in every different direction. And they do that to their own destruction. And then lastly, how should we watch? He says, be on guard. Jesus told an example, an illustration of the wise and foolish bridesmaids. He said, my return will be like a wedding night where the trumpet is going to sound and the bridegroom is coming through the streets. And that's when the bridesmaids are supposed to come out with their torches lit. And the wise ones are going to have oil for their torches. The foolish ones won't. Why? Because they're thinking, I don't need to run out tonight and get any oil because he's not coming tonight. And they're going to be caught off guard. And while they're out trying to buy oil, the door is going to be closed to the banquet hall. So Peter says, be on guard. Don't get carried away by these unprincipled men. Don't get caught up in the stream of their deception and get carried downstream by that. But instead, grow. Grow in two things. First of all, grow in grace and then grow in knowledge. Grow in grace Literally to be enlarged or mature in grace. And what is grace? Grace is receiving something you don't deserve. But also grow in knowledge. I meet people that are only growing in one of those and not the other. If you're growing in grace only and not knowledge, you're going to be shallow and probably leads to license. But I also meet people that grow in knowledge and not grace. You grow in knowledge... It's going to lead to pride. Look what I know. And it's going to lead to legalism. So why does Peter use both? It's because we need both. You need to be growing. In the meantime, before Christ comes back, have your life growing in the grace of God, something you don't deserve, but also the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Get to know Him so that you can tell other people about Him. And how do we best grow? The way that you grew physically is you grew up in a loving family. Well, we grow the same way spiritually. We need to be a part of a loving family. Where does that family take place? It takes place at church. We're not going to be here meeting next week. You're going to be somewhere else. Have you found a body of believers where the Word of God is proclaimed, where you have an opportunity to worship, 
and where you can grow, growing in grace and growing in knowledge. I used to not like family reunions because my little aunts or my big aunts would come up and kind of pinch me on the cheek. My, how you've grown. Sometimes we need to do that in church, though, and just pat people on the back and say, hey, you know what? You're growing. I can tell it. You're growing in grace and you're growing in knowledge. It's not just about what you know, but you've understood what you know comes through the grace of God. So I encourage you, plug in so that you can grow. Physical growth honors your parents, but spiritual growth brings glory to God. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me.